we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hey, welcome to today's episode. Today we have on the podcast Cindy. Welcome, Cindy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. I'm excited that you're here. Um, so our first question, as always, is where did you grow up? I grew up on the south coast of New South Wales in a little teeny tiny town called Dalmini, which is near Batemans Bay. And I lived there until I was 19. And then where did you go after that? I went from there and when I started working full time in disability, I moved to Canberra where I lived up until December last year. So I lived there for about 23 years and made the probably best move I've ever made in my life, moving to Queensland. And, uh, yeah, we're never leaving, (laughs) ever. (laughs) There's no snow here. (laughs) No, there's no snow here. Um, I was in Canberra a couple of weeks ago. I think it was 26 degrees up here and I got up in the morning and had to spend 20 minutes defrosting my windshield because of the ice and I don't miss that no. at all and I'm never moving back there again. <laughs> um, so what got you into the disability sector? As we were talking about just before, it, it's funny the, the where you get asked that so many times at multiple networking events and everyone you meet, how you got into the sector. And my my go-to answer has always been family. I have uh, two family members who are profoundly deaf. There's um, lots of different mental health concerns with, with different family members. But as I was driving yesterday and I was thinking about it, I remembered when I was uh, 18, I had gone away with my mum and we were staying with my grandparents And they had been caring for, doing foster care off and on for a young girl with cerebral palsy. And I was sitting on the floor in my grandparents' house with her and she actually had a seizure in front of me. And as terrifying as it was to see someone have a full seizure for the first time, sitting there with her and actually making sure she was okay, after that it was just kind of this thing that, I'd always thought I was going to be a primary school teacher and then it became, no, no, I'm going to do primary school teaching and disability, which teaching wasn't for me after starting uni. I pretty much left uni and then went straight into the disability sector, working with kids with high needs and I've been doing that since I was 19 and would never, ever go anywhere else. Um, So you work in the civil space primarily. So Mm -hmm. SIL for just so everyone is clear is supported independent living and it is where um, a participant needs 24-7 support um, and it's the support not the house. That's different. Um, So tell me a little bit about that. I've been doing things pretty much exclusively in the I suppose, the home and living space um, for going on about four and a half years now. I work as a business development manager for a company and we are, well, we're based in Victoria, but we uh, also provide service in Newcastle where we've just opened and also in Queensland. And we are a still only provider. So we work in the space with, as you said, people who need 24-7 support. Um, 
and whether that be in a, an SDA, a Specialist Disability Accommodation House, or whether it be in a house that the participant has via housing or a house that we've either rented or obtained for them to live in, um, and then we provide the supports for those participants. So uh, my role in the company is doing the transitions and onboarding and, and overseeing those participants as they move into their new home and if it's an SDA home, hopefully it's their forever home. So. And I really like um, a provider who tries to just do one thing and do that really well mm-hmm. because then you know that they know their staff. I think that's that's one of the things I've worked with um, in, I suppose, in my kind of direct service role um, besides working as a support worker but working for different providers where... I've worked for providers where they don't provide um, independent living or supported independent living supports. They provide in-home or community access or group supports. And then I've worked for providers that provide the entire price guide. Um, And I think one of my things, especially uh, working where I work now, which is with um, I Help Disability Services, is we've kind of seen that you if you're trying to do everything you can't do anything well and my kind of background and space in the sector is the complex space uh, i think my ideal participant is the more complex the better it's the participants that seem to kind of float around for a while until they find a provider that can take them But we work in that space specifically because that's where we know we will do a good job, um, where we know we are equipped to provide the supports for participants and where we know that um, we have an understanding of complex mental health, complex medical, um, whether it be complex physical needs and things like that. So I think one of the things that is really difficult in the space is trying to find your niche and find where you work well. And I think one of the things that can be really detrimental to participants is as a provider, if you try and do everything and then you have participants who you really have no business providing support to and those participants are the ones that then end up affected by your inability to provide that support. And it's not to say that people aren't coming in with the best intentions or they're they're coming in not just with the idea of thinking that a participant's got a huge plan and it's lots of money and this is going to be great, and there are instances of that, but people wanting to support participants and wanting to provide that support you need to do your research and know what your skill set is before you try and provide that support because you're inadvertently causing trauma to participants by ceasing service when you can't provide the support because you really shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. Absolutely, absolutely. I completely agree. It is uh, it is something that bugs me a lot of the time is people who try to be all things to all people, uh, nothing to nobody. It doesn't work. <laughs> it, does, it just doesn't work. Um, so I love so much that you you pointed that out. It's it's definitely something that I try to point out. And you know, do do one thing, do it really well, and know that you you are really good at that. So tell me how how do I go about getting approved in the NDIS for SIL? What does that process look like? <sighs> It's not a quick process. It can be a very convoluted process. And I think one of the problems is that the understanding in the wider community about what the NDIS funds in regards to supported independent living and who's actually eligible for it is one of the big problems because a lot of the times you'll have someone who say they're, I don't know, in their... 20s or in their 30s or in their 40s and they don't want to live with their parents anymore and they shouldn't have to. They see um, their friends, they see people they know living in their own house, being an adult, doing all of those things and they want to do that too and the kind of perception is that, well, then I'm an NDIS participant, I don't want to live with my parents so therefore I need SIL. 
And that's where the problem kind of lies because just because you don't want to live at home doesn't mean that you're entitled to SIL. As you've said before, SIL is someone who requires 24-7 support. And that can mean that someone can live with other people, which can be a problem in itself, or that someone needs one staff member with them 24 hours a day or even two or even three or even in very extreme cases, four staff members with them where they can't live with anybody else. And one of the problems, I suppose, is there's a housing crisis. There's not enough affordable housing around. The cost of rentals are astronomical. To try and find a rental property, you pretty much need to sell a kidney um, and hope that, I don't know, you've got a lucky rabbit's foot or something. But the affordability of it for someone who's on a disability support pension is ridiculous. And so there's people that are wanting to move out and they're wanting to live independently and they only need a couple of hours of support a day. But because of the housing crisis, because of affordability, because a loaf of bread or milk is ridiculous, you people aren't able to get that. So they're falling back on trying to apply for SIL your first kind of step when you're applying for SIL would be pretty much having a frank conversation with your support coordinator, your stakeholders, whether it be your occupational therapist, your um, it, it could even be talking to a behaviour practitioner, it could be talking to your psychologist and getting an idea of whether your team, because you need a team to apply for SIL, whether you're actually going to be eligible because otherwise it's a lot of money in funding that you're spending to find out that you're not actually eligible. You then need to get a full functional capacity assessment, which it means working with an OT to look at every single part of your life and what you need assistance with and what you don't need assistance with and working out how that would look in a home and living situation. So do you need assistance with your medication, with your shopping, with your cooking, with your cleaning, with your dressing, with taking care of your gardening, of things like that? And it can be something as simple as, as a person, as an individual, do you have the ability to maintain a tenancy independently? Because that can be something that means that you don't fall back on government housing because if you can't maintain a tenancy because you can't maintain a house due to your disability, then you really require a lot more support. Once you've got your functional capacity assessment, you need to get every piece of supporting documentation that you can get from every single therapist and person that you work with um, who, who can actually back up what your support needs are, whether that be a care impact statement from your family stating what your needs are in a house every day, that it it might seem on the outside to someone that you're incredibly independent and you can get out into the community and you can do all of these things. But when you are actually in your house with whether it be a family or a friend or whoever else is there, you can't actually be left alone. You may not have paid or formal supports 24 hours a day, but your informal supports like your family members or your neighbours or your uncle or whoever it is, if it's not a formal support, there's someone there to ensure that you turn the oven off, to ensure that if you go to fill the bathtub up, you don't leave the tap running, that you don't leave your doors unlocked at night, that you're able to actually cook a meal or shower or take your medication or you're actually able to care for yourself. So it's kind of getting all of that information together. At that point in time, you're probably still assigned to an LAC. And one of the things that you need to make sure in your plan is that you've got an accommodation goal in your plan. So even if your goal is to move out in three years, put that goal in your plan before then, that you want to explore options to be able to live away from your family or you want to increase your independent living skills to one day move into the community and then have your planning meeting with your LAC and put everything through, you won't get sales straight away. 
because you now need to do all of your home and living decision forms and everything that goes to the agency and then everything goes to the home and living team. And in an ideal world, you'll get a response in as long as a piece of string, a week, two weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, a year. If it's a crisis situation, you are going to get a response earlier most of the time. But it's not a quick process. So if someone, if your plan ends in two months and you're thinking that at the start of new, your new plan you're going to live in SIL, it won't happen that way. That the amount of decisions that the home and living team have to make is huge. And I suppose like so many aspects of the NDIS, they don't have enough planners. They don't have enough people there. And Unfortunately, if you have a lot of information and a lot of reports, sometimes it's just not read and you have to prepare that you're going to be knocked back the first time and you have to be prepared that it's going to be a fairly decent fight. In an ideal world, you'll get a new plan with your home and living decision that will state that you have been classified as someone who can live with three other people or two other people, which means then you need to find a provider who you are going to work well with or who their ideals match or I don't know whether they seem to promote themselves in a way that suits you. Um, Every provider is going to tell you that they are a participant-focused, values-based, ethical organisation who will do everything. Um, Every provider should be values-based, participant-focused and ethical. Having that as a catchphrase is not really something that should be a selling point. It's more going, I really like this person that I've met. We seem to get along. Um, The house that they've shown me has people who don't have to have the same disability as you, don't have to be the same age as you, don't have to, I don't know, be the same sex as you or anything like that. It's more about going, I'm a 26-year-old male and my favourite things to do are, I'll use a previous example, listen to country music, crochet small animals and cook Chinese food. And this house has a 45-year-old woman who absolutely loves Dolly Parton and Luke Coombs and she has an Asian heritage and she loves to teach people how to cook. She doesn't crochet but I'm going to teach her and you get along. Um, There's so many houses where you go, here's four 25-year-olds who all have level 2 autism who absolutely hate each other and do nothing together and it's a hot mess It's about looking for providers who won't force you to eat the same meals as everybody else or who won't say that everyone has to be up at um, 7am because that's when our morning staff start and you must be showered and dressed by 7.27. And on Wednesdays we have pizza and go bowling because bowling sucks (laughs) and it's not an activity that everybody should be doing. You've got to find someone that matches and then you make sure it's someone who fits with you and then you move in. That's the way it should go and it doesn't. Yeah, in an ideal world. (laughs) (laughs) So I, okay, I love so many things about what you just said. (laughs) Do you like to bowl? That was a great spiel. Um, So (laughs) one of the things um, that annoys me about the process, first of all, is the idea that everybody wants to live with housemates slash strangers because I, as an adult, do not want to live with in a shared house. Like I couldn't think of anything worse. So it frustrates me to no end that just because someone needs 24-7 support, they have to go and live with strangers. And because most, it is very, very difficult to get one-to-one. Like it can be done. 
It, it can be done. And <laughs> the area where I work um, for iHelp is we, as I said, we work in the complex space. So all of our participants here in Queensland are either a one-to-one or a two-to-one support. And it can be incredibly difficult to get that level of support. I think the frustrating thing, and as much as I say that I hate forcing people to live together and I hate the way that the system works, I actually do understand why they do it. It's not the right reason and it's not it's not choice and control, which is what the NDIS is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about participant choice and control. It's supposed to be about a participant choosing the supports to live an ordinary life. I know in the beginning in trial, which I was in in Canberra and that was a lot of fun, um, it was the toted thing that everyone gets to live an extraordinary life. Everyone should live an extraordinary life, but it's the fact that the NDIS is supposed to give you an ordinary life, which means not shoving you into a mini institution. But the cost of one-to-one funding is huge. Yeah. And that's... it. It's really, really bad that it comes down to money. But unfortunately, to to give every single person one-to-one funding, the NDIS would be so financially unsustainable. Like I understand that support workers need to be paid, providers need to be paid and all of that. And it is expensive to run a a group home. It is. But the, the reason I believe that they don't do it is because of the cost. Um, putting someone in a one to three house, and this is just quoting figures that I, for different plans and things, putting someone into in a one to three house who who doesn't need any one-to-one supports who, but requires someone to be there with them, it's anywhere from depending on how much community participation they get, which in all honesty will be bugger all, is anywhere from 200,000 to 300,000, giving someone one-to-one support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 550, 600, $700,000. It unfortunately comes down to cost, which is bullshit in a way, but it kind of is the way that it is. I don't like it, but it's the really crappy thing about it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, oh, what are some of the pitfalls to avoid, like some of the wording to avoid in reports for specifically for SIL? Because mm-hmm. I think when I've heard you talk um, previously, you, you've had some really good tips about what to put in. And, and I think a lot of the time when I read reports, what to leave out. <laughs> Do not write. Well, you know, because, yeah, because so many people don't get those tips. So, yeah. I think one of the things with your team of people who are writing reports for you to move into SIL is that when you're working with, uh, I suppose, one of the things with people is you're wanting to talk about someone's positives and someone's uh, things they can do and the way that they can do things for themselves. But unfortunately, the NDIS, to ensure that you've got funding, it's not celebrating someone's achievements. It's talking about their deficits and what they can't do. And it's a really crappy way to look at someone. And and I've said this to, to people that you don't want to sit there with an OT or with a planner and talk about how fantastic Bob is and what Bob can do for themselves because you're doing yourselves a disservice. Talk about that with your, your therapist outside of your planning meeting. Talk about that with your friends and celebrate your achievements there. But in a planning meeting and in a report, they they do want to know what you can do. It, as horrible as it is, they don't care about the things that you do well. They care about the things that you can't do. And it's ensuring that your reports are written that way. It's not to say that everything needs to be doom and gloom, but it's giving a true representation. So um, if you've got an occupational therapist who 
is an amazing occupational therapist who can go through, who, who is assisting you to be able to learn the skills to map your day out and to be able to operate a washing machine or develop some executive functioning and plan ahead. That's fantastic. But the NDIS needs to know that without that support from that occupational therapist and all the visuals in your house and the alarms and your mum or your dad or your partner asking you 75 times a day, you can't do this on your own. So it's having an occupational therapist who talks about the deficits that you have and the support that you need. But it's then also using wording that is not maybe able to, could do, sometimes can. It needs to be Bob can't do this without formal support. Bob won't be able to do this without um, having a support worker there. Bob is unable to take his medication without direct support because unfortunately as a planner when you're looking at reports, when you're looking at documents, it's planners are really done a disservice when they're given a home and living decision for a participant or given any type of document for a participant if they haven't met the participant. These people who are reading these reports, they haven't met you um, a lot of the times. Your LAC should know you, should read your reports, should be the same another tangent um, <laughs> but it's it's those kinds of things these people haven't met you the people who are making the final decisions especially if you're someone who's looking for that one-to-one support they're looking for the words that say can do um, is able to this may help this could be an option because in their eyes they're like right we don't need to fund it the the horrible thing is that they need to actually realize that a report about someone is not their whole life. They need to look at every part of it and ask questions and you need to have those documents. I've had instances where I've looked at OT reports and an OT report said that um, Bob uh, had formal support for six hours a day and that Bob um, had this support seven to uh, five days a week or six days a week or things like that and Bob in, with that support was engaged in the community and doing all of this and Bob lived with mum and dad and I said to the OT if you submit this you are going to be knocked back um, and the OT didn't know me um, it was the first time I'd worked with them and the OT unfortunately was in that mind space that they're an allied health professional I'm just a salesperson or whatever else I don't know what I'm talking about and they submitted it and the participant was knocked back the problem was was what what wasn't wasn't put in Bob's functional capacity assessment was that Bob has formal supports for six hours a day but Bob's mum or dad for the other 18 hours a day is never more than another room away they're always there because Bob can't do things on his own without intense support and when it came back I was nice I didn't say I told you so um I did eventually once I got to know them better and I actually said to the OT would you mind if I made some notes on how you could improve your report and I what I said to the OT is I'm not changing what you're saying or I'm not making what you're saying is a lie you're coming at this from a clinical perspective, I'm coming at this from a funding perspective. And so I pretty much rewrote the functional capacity assessment and I presented it to the OT. And the OT said to me, um, this isn't going to make a difference, you haven't really done anything. And we resubmitted it because the planner actually said, if you can resubmit this, um, we will relook at it. So we we're very lucky that it didn't get formally done, but they said, you're not, you're not going to get this. And lo and behold, um, participant was approved for SIL um, with the budget that they needed first off. The OT and I are now actually quite good friends. <laughs> and she will ask me to look at reports and tell me to be honest and tell her what's shit and what's not. And I think that's the problem is 
we have OTs who are writing reports and they're doing things for participants and trying to get things in place and celebrate their achievements. But as a team of stakeholders, we all kind of need to work collaboratively and go, hey, how about if we maybe change some of the wording or maybe do this or do that? And that's a lot of the stuff that I spend my time doing and trying not to make enemies of people whose reports I'm asking to change. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a huge difference between sort of us support coordinators and people in your position who we actually read a variety of different OT reports. So we sort of understand the gamut of different ways and means that people, different OTs do this or physios or speeches, whatever. And so when we suggest, oh, can you change this bit or that bit? It's not because we're being annoying or narky. It's because what we know from our perspective is what has gotten through and what has definitely not gotten through Mm -hmm. because this is not our first rodeo. No. (laughs) And I spent two and a half years as an LAC reading OT reports, reading physio reports, um, helping people in the ACT, which is a very, very, very different LAC space to Queensland where you, as LACs, work their backsides off. Um, They get a bad rap, but they absolutely work their backsides off. And you literally, I know in my case, we were doing on average 10 plans a week and we were going through report after report after report and you know what's going to get through. You know what is required. You... And it's not about being dodgy. It's not about it rorting the system. It's not about anything like that. It's about using the the system for what it was intended and providing the information to justify and back it up. You can make make most things meet reasonable and necessary criteria. I've had competitions to see what we can make meet reasonable and necessary criteria when the government system would go down all the time. So it's it's about being able to back it up with proof and back it up with documentation. And if you've got someone who's got experience, who's willing to share that experience with you and say, hey, you, you can change these two words, use it. And I think that's one of the things that lets us down as a sector where we all work in our own little bubbles and no one reaches out to anyone I spend so much of my time helping other people to understand things or getting a referral for a participant who I don't think is going to be right for us, but I know an awesome provider that they are going to be right for. So then meeting with the participant and introducing them to them and going, hey, this person could help you or having an allied health professional send me a report, which happened last week, going can you have a look at this for me? Because I don't know whether it's going to get across the line. And it may well have been that OT from the first time. And going, oh, this is awesome. Literally just change this paragraph and it'll go through and doing that. And I think that's one of the things that's very, very missing in the sector. It's getting better, but it's it's not about every provider needs to take every referral that they get and take on every participant. It's there's enough work sharing it around. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I find really difficult is when I get a report and just from start to finish, it's terrible. And you can't just write back and go, oh, you just need to change this paragraph. It's like, you need to scrap this and try the whole thing again. And I feel terrible when like I feel terrible and embarrassed oh. for the person who sent me this mm-hmm. because they've obviously thought, oh, this is good, this will get mm-hmm. through and whatever, and then I've got to go, um, <laughs> what? I've pissed quite a few people off when I've said things like that. I, as you know, am someone who can be very blunt. Um, I pretty much say it like it is. And it can get people offside at times. 
but they generally don't stay offside for long until I then go, look, I'm really sorry the word I said that way or that I made you feel this way, but my my whole interest or vested interest in this is the participant and I want the participant to get what they need. And then saying, oh, could we maybe all meet together and do a stakeholder meeting and, and do it that way? And then you're not the only person going, oh, your report would be fantastic for other things, but not for this. It's everyone else saying it. So you're not the only person <laughs> saying it. Um, and it generally I found in those stakeholder meetings, if I'm the first person to speak up, other people will follow. And so it then becomes more of a collaborative thing. But it, it is really, really hard when someone has missed the mark on what you're what a participant needs or what's been requested to then have to say, I'm really sorry, but it's not going to work. And I've seen instances where people in that, in that space, they've actually had to start all over again with a new therapist. And that's kind of your last resort because then you've got the funding issue and everything and having to do a whole new report. That's kind of worst case scenario, but I'd say probably 60 to 70% of the time you can get it turned around. It's just a little bit uncomfortable while you start the process. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've had experience where SIL providers have all of a sudden decided to cease services quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I've seen as well and, and I'm always shocked mm-hmm. by a SIL provider doing that to someone because it there are so many issues around it because it is so hard to just flip a switch and get them into another sill. Like it oh, just it's not quick. No. It doesn't work like that. No. If you're going to do it correctly, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you like tell me about a few of those sorts of instances? I've been the provider that sees service and I've done it a few times. It's never a decision that as a provider you make lightly. It should not be a we're going to do this immediately or you've got to be out tomorrow or you've got to do this. My advice or would always would be to participants signing a SIL service agreement is have a look at the notice period and if a provider's got a five-day notice period or a seven-day notice period for SIL, don't sign it because that could effectively mean that you could be homeless in seven days. Um, also look at the providers that have a 12-week notice period and things like that and think that, hmm, if I want to leave, am I stuck here for three months? Always look at, at that side of things. I think in instances where I have seen service on a participant, well, and it's not just me, it's always a decision that's made I know one of the instances where we had to see service, it was a very bumpy situation, that there'd been lots of things that had gone on and it wasn't just a decision by myself, it was a decision by myself. Um, I was part of the executive team, the rest of the executive team, the owner, the CEO, like it was, it's not just someone going, "Mm -hmm, you're going to be about tomorrow because it doesn't work that way. Um, it was a very long lead up to it. Um, there was a good three and a half months of meetings of how can we make this work better? How can we do this? If we can't do this, we are going to have to see service. This is what's going to happen. And then um, in this instance, the participant had eight weeks. Um, and, and there's always that option that if the participant finds somewhere sooner, that you let them out of the service agreement. You don't well, you can't charge if you're not providing the support anyway, or ethically you shouldn't, um, or you, but you be a part of a transition to another provider. You don't just leave them high and dry and go, toodles, because it's not right. I've had instances where, unfortunately, it, it ended up being that the NDIS is about choice and control for a participant, and it, it should be about choice and control, but there needs to be an element of choice and control for a provider as well. A provider may be very well equipped to take on a participant and may have provided service for a participant for a very long period of time, but participants' needs change, staffing changes, provider scope changes, and there are instances where a provider does need to excise their 
like choice and control as well and go, we are choosing not to provide service for you because we now believe we're not the best fit. In that instance, you still have to do the right thing and give the participant notice. And I've, I've had that. I've had participants that have had incredibly complex and critical incidences that have meant that services had to be ceased from a provider front to protect staff, to protect things to happen, but you still can't dump a participant and make them homeless, that there's ways that you can go about it. If a participant is living in a shared environment and all of a sudden they can't due to an increase in need or a significant change to their disability, then you have to be able to look at ways of how this can be managed, how you can do this before you get the participant out. You, I've seen instances where participants have been given 24 hours notice without going into to details of that participant specifically. That participant was left homeless. That participant was abused by the provider. And it was literally because the participant reacted in the way the provider didn't want to a situation and they gave 24 hours notice. Um, The trauma that that creates for a participant and then you've also got the fact that a participant is who could be achieving goals and doing things is their needs are then going to increase because they then have to adjust to moving somewhere else. They may have to, what, what about if all their programs and their doctor and their specialists are located in one area and then they've got nowhere to go. They've got, they can't get somewhere close to them. They have to uproot their whole life. It's exactly the same as if yourself or myself had to move. You still want to stay close to your ties in the community. It's, it, it's not the way it should be done. I completely agree. And you, I think you really well put what the process should be mm-hmm. um, and, and supporting the participant in a transition because absolutely I think you're right about providers have a choice as well Mm -hmm. and to to keep their staff safe Mm -hmm. like you say but it like the service agreement cancellation periods still apply Mm -hmm. and you can't just boot someone out the next day. No. Yeah so is there Anything else that you wanted to say that we haven't touched on yet? I think I've said many, many, many words. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one of the main things when it comes to the SIL space is that it's not something to take on just because they're the most expensive plans in in, in the NDIS. I think it's something that providers really need to do their research before they jump into the sill pool because, it, look, some of the the houses that have beautiful groups of participants in it that are one to three that, or even more complex participants that are, that are sharing together and stuff like that, they work wonderfully. There may be no incidences whatsoever. There may be nothing that ever goes wrong, but it's a minefield. Once something starts to go wrong, it's generally a domino effect and if you don't have a team in your company who understands all of the bits and pieces that fall into it, it could result in someone losing their life, a staff member being very seriously hurt or a provider losing their registration, which it, no one wants it to go down that road. It's, it's, not, it's not a playground for everybody and I think that's probably the one thing that kind of needs to happen with that is it's not just a free-for-all for everyone to jump in because there's lots of money in the SIL space. And because just not that many participants get SIL. So if everyone keeps jumping in and going, oh, that's where the money is, there's not actually the participants to fill those vacancies. No, and you see, like, I'm a part of... I counted them the other day, I think about 75 different NDIS groups on Facebook. And I'm all for people learning and wanting to get knowledge and things like that. And you see almost anonymous posts that come up that um, like the, the posts that you see are fantastic going, 
we are investigating, I saw one yesterday, we're investigating to see whether we are suited to the SIL space. We want to find if there are any, um, it was if there are any learning platforms or any, any things like that. And that's fantastic that before someone jumps in, they want to do that. If a provider's coming into the SIL space, don't just make that the first thing you ever do. I know with iHelp, before we jumped into the SIL or providing SIL in other people's SDAs, which is the way that it should be, um, that we, we, we did home and community support. We did group programs. We made sure that our policies and our ability to handle complex participants and our ability to work in the NDIS space, we made sure our foundations were solid for a good couple of years before we jumped into the SIL space. You don't jump in and go, I'm going to go and buy a house and I'm going to fill it with five participants who are all this and all that. And I think that's that's one of the biggest things that needs to change. And it's the same as I'm going to build an SDA house and I'm only going to take people with the highest level of funding and I'm going to put four of those people in one house. It, it, no. <laughs> Yeah, particularly that one where, you know, four high physical support people in one house. (laughs) I said to someone one day, so hang on a second, how does the support worker, you know, help get like everyone showered or toileted in the morning? Like, how does this work? And what if your choice is like your, Fred's choice is to get up at seven, but Bob's choice is to get up at 10. Oh, you can't do and, that. No, that you know, doesn't work. Like, <laughs> you've got, or if if just by chance everyone does want to get up at ten, mm-hmm. 7 or 10 or something, like, and it just, it blows my mind that people don't seem to connect those two issues together. People see the funding side of things and go, ooh, high physical support participant and look thank goodness for the changes in the SDA prices there's not as much of a discrepancy between your improved livability your fully accessible and your your high physical supports don't get me started on someone's a one-to-one robust but they they, someone's been funded shared robust supports but their NDIS still supports a one-to-one because they can't live with anybody else that is a bang head on table moment. I think one of the things with that, with the high physical support, and many, many years ago in the, the, the era of block funding, I worked in what would effectively be a high physical support house now. We had five participants in that house and we had four staff members on from 6am until 8pm at night and two every, like, overnight. And it was horrible of a morning. It was a production line. And when I say high physical, like high complex support, we had in like the things that we used to do as support workers then that we were trained and accredited, mind you, we were accredited to do them. We weren't just hacks running around doing things, but we were doing pressure area care. We were doing peg, um, like your, your peg tube, your, your cleaning, your, goodness me, even changing peg tubes, doing checking balloon levels. We were doing bowel care. We were doing hoisting, epilepsy, suctioning, all of that. And the house that I, one of the houses, because I I worked in quite a few houses like that, you would start work at six o'clock and these people were starting to get up at 20 past six because you'd have two people that had to go to day program and then you would have one person that had to be here and one person that had to be there. So effectively it became a production line and it was literally three hours of non-stop. Like this person's going on the toilet, this person's getting the shower, this person's getting a suppository and then oh, they've only got 15 minutes to have a bowel movement because then we've got to do this and then we've got to do that. It, it doesn't work that way. And a four-bedroom or a, a high physical support house that can have three participants in it, High physical support, you're generally looking at participants in wheelchairs. You're generally looking at participants who need a lot of support. If each one of those participants has two staff members for a transfer, which is fairly standard if it's a a complex transition or complex transfer, how are you going to fit 
three participants in the morning with their own lots of two staff. So you've got two staff for Bob, two staff for Fred, two staff for Mavis, and then Bob, Fred and Mavis, that's nine people in a house. It's it's like sardines in a can. It doesn't work that way. It, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and including all of their equipment. And <laughs> this is this is another thing I think is sometimes builders forget in SDA homes mm-hmm. is we also need somewhere to store their equipment when it's not being used. Oh, look, I, I looked at an SDA home the other day and um, it was fantastic. It was, it was originally built as a powder room um, in there, which wasn't required because it, the OOA and every other room had an ensuite and everything and it was absolutely fantastic to have the – and it is a high physical support house – but it was absolutely fantastic to be there with the SDA, I suppose the SDA management company, and to hear um, the woman that I was there with saying, this is not a powder room, this is a storeroom. The amount of equipment that is going to be required in this house, this is a perfect storeroom. And to actually hear an SDA provider, and I absolutely adore that company for the fact that they're actually thinking that. And the wardrobes in the house are huge. There's like it's not a matter of a participant going. You've got two shelves here. Let's put all of your world, world worldly belongings on two shelves and you know, shove it in boxes in the garage. This house is phenomenal, and it's not the norm, which is really sad. That it's not the norm that you don't need because you have a disability. You you don't have forty thousand t-shirts and fifty pairs of shorts and my whole walk-in wardrobe is mine. My husband gets a shelf. So any other person living there is in a house, you need that. You, you can't be expected that just because you're an SDA participant that you can't have belongings. Exactly, exactly. And they're meant to look like a home mm-hmm. because that's first and foremost what they are. And <laughs> <laughs> Let's go and buy the same couch in the same colour and the same table from the same shop and put it in every single one of our houses. Yes. And the couch is not suitable and it's not comfortable and it makes it look like a doctor's office. It's a house. Put some cushions and some pictures up and holy crap, someone's got a coffee maker on the bench or... I don't know, some weird art that they like or things like that. I, I've got random crap all over my house because it's things that is my personality. It's things that I like. It's the way that I like things. It's not a matter as a SIL and an SDA provider. It's it's great if you're providing furniture for a participant and you're provi- making sure that because so many participants who are moving into a house they don't have the ability to go and buy all of these things. Put an outdoor setting outside. Having a, I won't say that word. Having a you can ki- swear. It's okay. Oh, we I've do have a little warning. bit, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> Putting a kitchen chair outside for someone to sit outside doesn't make it a home. Put an outdoor setting out there. Have a barbecue. Participants want their friends to come over. They they actually want to feel like, as you said, it's their home it's not a sterile environment like I I understand that and and you have to in a sill home you've still got to have your emergency evacuation plan like all the freaking signs that you had to have up for COVID like there was things that you have to have some participants need visuals so they know where their bedroom is they know this is Bob's bedroom not Mavis so Mavis doesn't go and try and get into Bob's bed because she doesn't realize like that's fine but if you've got to have nameplates on a door, please don't just print up and laminate stuff. Actually get nice name tags or do things like that. It's a home. It, it's so sad when you look online and you see every single SIL provider or a SIL provider in every single one of their house looks like a cheap Ikea catalogue with no personality or anything like that. Like I, I, I don't have I, – I, I've done SIL homes where – I can't keep a plant alive to save myself. I kill air plants. I'm not allowed to even touch any of our plants at home. 
put some plastic ones, do something, make it look like a normal house, not a little hospital room. I'm yes. opinionated. <laughs> no, 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 because you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. And mm-hmm. and I completely agree because it, it, it is something that is very annoying to mm-hmm. me. Um, so I, I love that you have said that. <laughs> um, so our last question of the podcast is, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? Because this is an ideal world where there is no monetary limits, where there's proper choice and control. Because, look, I, I wouldn't work in the NDIS space if I didn't believe that it wasn't a good thing. I, compared to block funding, I, I do, I absolutely, one of those lovely little purple things, I love the NDIS, I actually do love the NDIS for what it stands for. I hate some of the stuff that it's caused and that it's done. In an ideal world, a participant would have the supports to live a normal life and that means that if someone needs to move out of their family home or things like that, they get the support they need, whether that be in a housing property that they need or in a still home and they're not forced to live with people that they don't like their houses look like homes. They can have visitors over. A participant can live in a sill home and still be able to have an adult relationship with someone. And <laughs> not no. sex in a oh, share no. house. <laughs> Cindy. <laughs> I'm sorry, in any other share house, if you've got a bunch of people living in their 20s. Oh, or in their, their 50s. 50s. <laughs> Hang on. Even in their 60s, yeah. people have natural needs. They want to be able to have a physical, a sexual, an emotional relationship if they have ability to give informed consent and it's not a risk to them. The same as any other share house. No one wants to hear what you're doing in your bedroom, whether that be that your boyfriend's over or your girlfriend or whoever's over for the night or whether your favourite thing to do is yodel at 3am. No one wants to hear you yodel. No one wants to hear you doing other things, but it, it people should have that option. It's I'm a very, very big believer in that and it's the way it should be because if I want to do that, I can do that in my own home, so why shouldn't someone else? In an ideal world, people get to live on their own. They have the supports that they need. In an ideal world, everyone putting in a change of situation because all of a sudden your family member who's been providing your support for 20 years has passed away you don't end up in hospital for 16 months because the NDIS can't pull their finger out and approve a plan. You have a participant who has a stroke who ends up in hospital for a year and a half because they don't know if this is permanent. Well, living in hospital for a year and a half sucks. Get someone into a home and do some temporary funding. In an ideal world, someone who has turned 65 doesn't get shoved into a nursing home just because their needs change after the age of 65, if they're in a cell home or if they're living in their own home and it is disability related, you get to stay there. You don't have to move 100 kilometres away because it's cost effective. And I'll stop with all my ideal world things now because I'm... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's so many. Yeah. Uh, Exactly right. Because once you're on the NDIS, you're supposed to be on it for life. You just have to get (sighs) on it before 65. And this is the bit that so many people misunderstand. Mm -hmm. And even planners and LACs misunderstand. And I happen to have had a participant who um, was close to 65 when I met them and then has subsequently gone over mm-hmm. that age. And every all that happens is every year they go, would you like to stay on the NDIS or would you like to go over to my age care? And they go, well, I want to stay on the NDIS. And the planner goes, okay, we'll see you next year. And whereas even this morning I was having a look at Facebook and Again, another person has been told, oh, no, now that the participant has reached 65, they need to go into a nursing home. And I was like, no, no, that's not correct. One of the things that's a really big problem, so years and years and years ago, (laughs) another tangent, 
years and years and years ago, when this started, it was always saying to people, and I remember sitting there in planning meetings with people, do not go to my aged care. Stay on my NDIS. Uh, stay on my NDIS. Stay on NDIS. It, it's the fact that there are exceptions to the rule for this and one of the exceptions that I had was someone who was under on the NDIS under the age of 65. They had gone on to the NDIS for vision impairment. Um, so they were getting the things that they needed for vision impairment. They weren't 100% blind, but they had, they had supports that they need and that was all being covered. The participant was 67 and they had a stroke. Their needs... The NDIS wasn't going to meet the needs for the stroke because the stroke happened after the age of 65. That person, they were better suited to go to a nursing home. What I always used to say to someone is if you're under the age of 65 and you have a disability, but as you get over the age of 65, your ageing needs, because there are significant things that are just in relation to ageing, if that outweighs the support that you receive due to your disability, because you can't be funded for that under the NDIS because your, your ageing needs are not your disability needs, there may be some correlation, then go to my aged care. But having a participant, and this is a really big bugbearer of mine, having a participant, an example would be having a participant who has a disability, significant disability, they went on the NDIS under the age of 65. They went into hospital due to a health condition, which then exacerbated their disability. They needed to be in hospital for a significant period of time. This participant could no longer live at home with their family and in the process of not living at home with their family had enough funding that they transitioned into a SIL home. But it was costed out hourly, done all correctly, everything that was there. Everything was in with the decision for the home and living decision for this person. This person should have been able to move into back to the SIL home where they were with the level of support that they needed, which was only slightly higher than what they were getting. Um, that was the participant's choice. The response from the NDIS pretty much was because this participant was now 66. Oh, no, 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 this, this deterioration... It's not because of their disability, it's because of their age. Now, the person's disability is a degenerative condition and so this disability is going to deteriorate as this person progresses through the normal movement of this disability, whether they're 25, 35, 55, 65. If this had happened when they were 63, nothing would have happened. This person would have gone into a SIL home, no issue. But because this person had turned 66, this person was told they could not go into home and living supports. They needed to go to a nursing home. I believe it's gone. I no longer work with that participant. It's gone very high up. However, in the area where the participant lived, there was no nursing homes that could provide the level of support that that participant needed within a 65-kilometre radius so if this person was going to move into a nursing home, this person was going to have to move more than 65 kilometres away from their family, from their support team, from everything. And there's multiple instances that I'm aware of where this has happened. And we, it's like what we seem to be doing is we're doing everything we can to get younger people out of aged care, which is fantastic and it needs to happen but we're getting all the younger people out of aged care to put the people that are 65 and one day in. So we're literally swapping the two of them over. And there has been an instance where a participant who was brought out of an aged care facility at 63, who at 64, they were brought out. They've now so, since, so they've come out, they've transitioned, they've done fantastically. Degenerative condition. The condition is progressing as it should be. That participant is now having a planning meeting because they are now over the age of 65. The participant is being put back into the same nursing home that they worked 12 months to get the participant out of. And it's literally because a nursing home is cheaper. That, it's, that's just infuriating just to listen it's like It's absolutely mind-boggling. It, it's shit and it shouldn't happen that way, but it is.
So in another ideal world, if you're over the age of 65, you don't have to go into a nursing home. If you're under the age of 65 and you shouldn't be in a nursing home, you don't have to be there either. Right. And another issue with the nursing homes is they don't have the ratios that we have in disability. No. They are like one to 40, you know, sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if someone already had a baseline disability Mm -hmm. of a disability and then they age and they go into a nursing home, they're not then going to get one-to-one. That's not how that works. But they will fund community and social participation inside the nursing home. So they've still in that one-to-40 ratio where it's the same thing. Everyone's got to have their suppository and their meds by 6.26 and your breakfast by 7.07 and then you go back and sit in your room by yourself. And, look, there are some amazing nursing homes out there that do wonderful things. But... If they're ratioed at that, how can they provide that level of support? So you've then got your social and community participation that's coming in and they're doing a lot of the extra personal care things, which is then as a detriment to the participant because that social support is supposed to be getting them out into the community and not having them isolated. But because the nursing home is so stretched because they're having people with disabilities come in there with higher care levels, not to mention all of the elderly people who've got higher care levels, it means that you've got the NDIS workers who are supposed to be doing things in the community with the participant, jumping in to assist with the stuff that the nursing home, for their own faults for their system, can't do as well. So it's it makes no sense because by rights... The participants getting the funding for my age care. They're getting the funding from NDIS still because they're not going off completely. It's just the NDIS is funding the nursing home. Why not just leave them where they were? Uh, yeah, exactly. The amount of people who are ageing and are put into a nursing home who still, just because their bodies are failing them, their mind's not. If they're in that environment, their minds then start to fail and then everything else falls apart and it, it's... Yeah, it's it's not a nice place, and it's it's if you don't need to be there, you shouldn't be there. No, exactly, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming <laughs> on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I I really appreciate your perspective, um, and I I love your passion. <laughs> it's so exciting to I, see. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything else. I, I think. What are we? I'm. 23 years in the sector now and um, I, I will never leave. Yeah. Ever. It's, no, it's my happy place. Yeah, that's awesome. Even with all the faults. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because we love the NDIS that we we know it can be better mm-hmm. and we like, this is amazing, mm-hmm. particularly going on what we had before. Oh, yeah. But, but it could also get better. <laughs> I I think it will. I'm going to be an optimist. I think it will. It has to. Yeah. I'd say it can't get worse, but it can. So let's just hope it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. You can email us at whatinthendispod at gmail.com. To contact me, it's hannah at tulipcoordination.com.au and to contact Sam, it's sam at rosenbaum.consulting. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.